Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Have you ever been to a Renaissance festival? Did you go back the next year and the next? My guest has. Al Olson has performed at many festivals over the years and decades, and the tandem comedic vaudeville act Smee and Blog were formed out of frustration and a desire to present something unique. And Al and his partner performed for 36 years, singing and dancing across the United States and Canada at 56, that's 56 Renaissance festivals and medieval fairs. Now, he's written a book called A History of the American Renaissance Festival, Where Have All the Hippies Gone? Available on Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about Al, go to singingexecutioners.com. That sounds threatening. Singingexecutioners.com. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have memories of going to a Renaissance Festival when I lived in Los Angeles many years ago. But you've been part of that environment for decades. So what drew you to it initially? Actually, uh, we had a folk singing group back in the 60s. We were playing at a theater and the artistic director of the Minnesota Renaissance Festival happened to come to that show and hired us for the festival before we actually knew what it was. <laughs> so you were performing and became part of the festival lore, but m mostly from a performer standpoint, but did you also get a chance to soak it in from the, for want of a better term, the consumer point of view? Well, yes, uh, as well as performing, I uh, produced one in Nashville, Tennessee, and so I'm familiar with all phases of the business, but uh, I far prefer the performing. Oh, of course. If you're a performer, of course you're going you're gonna to love the performing. What drew you year after year after that? I mean, obviously these were professional gigs, but what's unique about a Renaissance festival? And as I mentioned, the subhead is where have all the hippies gone, which we'll touch on in a second, but what was it that drew you to that unusual environment versus performing elsewhere. You could perform in coffee houses or theaters or auditoriums or performing arts centers. Well, you are encouraged to uh, have a back and forth with the audience. Uh, most other places you perform, there's kind of that, that fourth wall that protects the audience from the performer. Uh, Renaissance festivals are totally inclusive. We bring people up on stage for shows. In between stage shows, in the lanes, we interact as characters, and frankly, <laughs> I, I've always loved doing big shows to lots of people, but I get such a kick out of playing with people in the lanes as well. I love both, both sides of it. That's an interactive experience. Yes. Yeah. When you were doing the duo, was it a 50-50 situation, or were you doing most of the heavy lifting, or was your partner doing most of the hefty lifting? How does that work? Well, uh, my partner is a brilliant writer, but he had less of a theatrical background. So he basically uh, wrote the raw material, and then it was up to me to direct it and turn it into uh, something usable as a show, as well, building props and that sort of thing was usually my, my thing. But we both, we performed together uh, for 49 years, actually, before we even started Renaissance Festivals with with the folk singing group. Wait a minute, you were together for 49 years before even getting involved in the Renaissance? Oh, no, that... I mean, uh, we... Because we... that makes you 120, so I don't know yeah, about that. No, about 12, years, <laughs> about 12 years prior to starting the Renaissance Festival, we, oh, yeah. we started performing together in high school. 
All right. That, now that's more realistic. Okay. So <laughs> uh, why do you think Americans are, not all, but a certain segment of Americans are infatuated with attending Renaissance festivals? What is it that happens there that, that people are enamored about and, and return year after year? Well, an awful lot of the people really do enjoy the interactive portion. Others, the shopping is incredible. I mean, there are people that just simply come out to see all the handmade items and all the unusual things that you can purchase at these festivals. But since, since COVID, festivals are just exploding because people just want to get out of the house and get outdoors for some entertainment. Sure. It's a structured outdoor environment. It's not as if you're just in the woods. You're among other people, and it's a, somewhat of an organized event. Oh, Oh, very much yeah. so. No, these, uh, I mean, the, the crafts booths, uh, some of them are just spectacular. It's, it's, uh, the sites are, are uh, something to see as well as the, the performances. And the producers go to a lot of work to create a village feeling and uh, actually design vistas uh, for turning a corner and seeing a whole new area and, and, you know, have a design to draw people along and make sure they get through the whole site. Well, do you think it's part of the appeal too, is that it's a, it's a different world. It's a fantasized version of medieval times in a way. And is that part yes. of it too? As a matter of fact, more and more, I was just out at Scarborough fair uh, recently and it, I would say, almost 50% of the attendees were in costume. Now, there's not necessarily Renaissance costume. Right. I mean, Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but it's a safe space for people to, to come and be what they want to be. And that, that more and more seems to be what attracts people. Well, in days when I went to one or two of them in the, in the past, obviously, it was mostly either street clothes or medieval clothes. It was not Star Trek, but of course, Star Trek probably wasn't produced at that point. But that's interesting. So it's even a wider range of participants in the sense of what they're going to wear or what they're going to do. Steampunk, pirates. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just goes on. What led you to write the book? And of course, you have a photographer as part of that book as well. Uh, and we should probably mention his name too. It's Mike, is it Breach? Mike Barrich. Mike Barrich. Uh, sad okay. to say he passed away a year ago. Oh, sorry to hear that. But he uh, he was a well-known rock photographer. I mean, he traveled with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. He was uh, with the Beatles in Hawaii trying to get them all together in the room for a picture when they were breaking up. He worked for the Republican Party for 20 years and claimed that he made more money selling old Doors photos than he did working for the Republican Party in that period. But... I was lucky enough to know him since high school, and uh, he always did all of our press photography, which was spectacular. And in the mid-90s, I took him around to four festivals to take world-class pictures of participants in, in their space, crafters with their crafts, performers doing what they do, that sort of thing. And so once I collected all those photos, I realized that I needed to do a bio of the people in the photos because the, the photographs were so interesting mm -hmm. that people would probably want to uh, have more information on those folks. Well, what started you on that road to doing a book to begin with, though? Originally, in the mid-80s, 
Renaissance festivals were kind of a sitcom joke. Anytime they mentioned them, they, you know, it was all a bunch, a bunch of geeks in the woods that really didn't have any talent, but just were messing around. At that point, I had already been performing for 10 years and I knew people with PhDs, masters, very, very, very talented people that were part of this industry. And I really wanted to uh, change that misconception that these, these are professionals and, and these people invented the industry. Basically, it was, it was a blank slate when we all started. I mean, that was, that was our situation. Mm -hmm. We all of a sudden just came up with this idea that took it one step further. We had been doing our music. Well, we wrote original Renaissance songs once we were hired for the show, but we're out there in the lanes and we see Penn and Teller and Avner the Eccentric and all these other people that are getting all this attention. So we kind of brainstormed and uh, came up with this idea for uh, these executioners, which really worked for us. If you read the book, you will, you will see some incredible people and, and incredible stories. Do you think there's a danger that the fact that it's grown over all these decades, that it will get a little too corporate and lose that spirit? Actually, an awful lot of people in the industry feel that right now. We, of course, have gone through the Me Too movement. In the early days, flirtation and risque humor was almost to be expected. And now that has cleaned up entirely. People are very concerned about how far they can go now. And uh, most shows, well, not eh, most shows are, are pushing the family friendly feel because it, it, they, they're getting the families out and they're happy with it. But a lot of the old timers feel that it's definitely lost the, the flair that we had in the beginning. You address that as a, from a cultural standpoint, but I was thinking of it more from a financial or economic aspect by it becoming more corporate. So all of a sudden, the handcrafting uh, actually is not handcrafted, but comes from Taiwan or China or something like that. I guess that's to my point. And, and ticket prices are higher than they would normally be given the, the history of the festivals. Yeah, ticket prices continue to rise, although the infrastructure at festivals demands that to some extent. I mean, for instance, Texas Renaissance Festival has their own waste disposal system on site. They've got nine greenhouses that they grow the flowers on. There's over 10,000 concrete benches on the site. A few years ago, uh, he built a $700,000 marble stage. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and the others, I mean, there are a lot of expenses to running a, a huge outdoor event like this. I mean, they're now they're putting in uh, hardwired internet because they're fi finding that uh, people can't all just use their phones to uh, take charge cards because you got that many people out in the space and it tightens up the amount of access you've got. Right. So, I mean, there are a lot of, they're, they're growing and, and they're becoming more modern. I mean, there's just a lot more to the infrastructure. Before I get back to the book, one other thought, and that is, what's the average duration of a festival? Is it a week? Is it three days? Six, uh, six weekends. Okay. Six or seven weekends is kind of the average. 
So the infrastructure, the infrastructure stays in place. In other words, during the week when no one's there, and then they just pick it up again on the weekend. Yes. Ah, okay. And depending on the show, they use use it for Halloween. Some shows like Pennsylvania run events year round. They just change whatever's happening, but they they use their site all the time. Well, getting back to the book, when you organize it and you put it all together and you got the photos, what was the main theme from your point of view? Again, it's called the History of the American Renaissance Festival. Where have all the hippies gone? I want to touch about the hippies in a second. But first, how did you organize it? Is it sequential or chronological, or is it just a mishmash of different personalities that you highlight through photos and text? Well, I started out with how the the pleasure fairs in California is where it all started. And that was 62, Phyllis Phyllis and Ron Patterson. And uh, (laughs) this is a, a fun little aside, though they would never hire us because they claimed that singing executioners weren't historically correct. <laughs> when Phyllis Patterson sold the show to Renaissance Entertainment Corporation, a friend of mine uh, witnessed her dropping uh, files into a dumpster and saved them all and gave them to me. And so I got lots of information on the early days of the pleasure fairs, even though I've never been a part of them. So that really added to chapter one of the book, which was the pleasure fair. And then George Coulomb was a uh, fellow from Salt Lake City who was in California and working the pleasure fairs. He decided to take it home. It didn't work in Salt Lake City, but he then took it to Minnesota where it caught on like wildfire. And from there, it spread about 15 major shows, just people from Minnesota that took it around. And so basically I followed the history from California for George Coulomb and the Minnesota Connection, which spread a number of shows out. And then the then the following chapter, I cover the independent shows, most of which were also inspired by the California shows, but brought to different cities by other people. And uh, then once once I covered the advent of 32 festivals, then I added 54 biographies of key people in all aspects of the industry to kind of give a feel for what, what all was involved and what kind of people were involved. And I, uh, I finished it off with a chapter on ephemera that has posters and different art that you know has been a part of, of the festival circuit. Well, that sounds pretty comprehensive. You mentioned the beginnings in California. And if memory serves, which it never does with me, I have this memory of a festival somewhere in Southern California in the mountains, but I can't tell you beyond that. So from your research, where were those pleasure festivals held in California? Novato, it moved around a little bit. The Southern, the Southern Fair moved around a little bit. It, there, it was on uh, a movie ranch for a couple, a couple of years. Well, that may, be, that, that may be the one that I was at, because I just have this memory of it being, not a great memory, but just that it being out in the hills or the mountains in Southern California, and that would have been where those movie ranches were, so. Yeah, that's probably, yeah. yeah. What was the reaction? I'm sorry, I cut you off that you were talking about Northern California. Where would it be in Northern California? Well, that's up near San Francisco. Okay. Did you shop the book around a little bit? I, not shop, that's probably the wrong term. Did you share your book with several people in the industry and what was the reaction to it? 
actually, I uh, I have some wonderful comments on Facebook. People uh, tell me that it puts them to tears that they're so thankful that I did it that it gives it gives people a feeling of legitimacy, and plus plus just wanting to know the story of of how it all happened, and so it's it's actually been pretty rewarding for me. If you had to place these festivals in context of all the other American cultural phenomena, would it be low on the list, high on the list, somewhere in the middle? Since just by endurance alone, it's been around for so many decades, that certainly positions it somewhere there. But where would you put it? That would be hard because the story isn't really uh, finished yet. Correct. And the way they're growing... <laughs> it's uh, i mean it's unbelievable but shows nowadays they're having trouble with traffic they're having trouble with running out of food crafters are running out of product i mean it's again since covid it's just been insane but they are more popular than ever and still growing so well let me re let me rephrase that your honor what about for the past in other words since the beginning of these festivals up to today where would you put those within the um, larger scheme of American cultural attractions and entertainment? I justify the, uh, the genre as something similar to vaudeville or, or the jazz movement or something like that. I, I don't know how I could rank it, really, but uh, it's, as I say, it's growing. It is popular. You attribute it to COVID. Are there any other factors that are there that causes that popularity to increase? Besides the end of COVID, in essence, I think basically what happened is at the end of COVID, people wanted to go to a safe environment outdoors, which which these were, and then uh, once they went, they discovered that hey, this is this is fun. We'll come back, and word of mouth has always been the best advertising oh, for these. Absolutely. Would you consider yourself? I would consider you a veteran of the. Festivals, are there other veterans out there that we should know about, people that have been contributing to the festival over years or decades that you want to recognize? In other words, are there particular individuals who really made a difference in terms of the increasing the popularity of the festival or contributing to the infrastructure, etc.? Well, one of the uh, very most uh, popular acts, Buchan Snot. Thanks to that name, the, their merchandising is unbelievable, uh, <laughs> and they uh, are unstoppable. I mean, the shows that they work, uh, they'll they'll never lose. I mean, uh, Mark Sieve Puke, he just told me this last year, he's 79 right now, and he just signed a multi-year contract. Nice. So, for a comic sword fighting act. And that, that kind of act, those guys would probably not be able to prosper in other venues or other types of entertainment. Would you agree? Or, or maybe not? Well, actually, no. He makes a lot of money on the corporate circuit as well. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, he, uh, he's, he's got it all down. But, you know, there are some pretty famous people that uh, moved past it. Penn and Teller, Avner the Eccentric, the Raspini brothers, uh, Turk Pipkin, I mean, Harry Anderson was out at the pleasure fairs for a while, but within the industry, uh, there are so many people that are still doing it. John Coiner, very, very talented potter. He builds beautiful buildings. 
Sharon Crystal does incredible costuming. And, and again, she's called Boss Wench. <laughs> and she's been around since uh, the first Pleasure Fairs. So she's been in the industry for 60 years. And uh, she continues to build spectacular buildings and, and present wonderful crafts. Uh, and that's, that's why in the book, that's who I'm paying homage to are the, these people who, who built the industry and ha- who keep it strong. So all these people are important, obviously. Now, I mentioned your initial website, but you have another one where you sell the books and are autographed as well, right? Yes. It's Smee Books, S-M-E-E-B-U-C-H-S dot square dot site, S-I-T-E. Okay, and good. That, uh, they can get autographed books on okay. that site. You're not making it easy with that kind of a long name, but okay, if people give it again so people can write it down. Okay, it's S M E E B U C H S dot square dot S I T E. Okay. When you put the book together, was your thought that there might be a sequel to the book? Is there enough material to go ahead and do another one? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'm working on it. There have been so many people that were unhappy they didn't make it in the first <laughs> book uh, that I'm, uh, I'm actually 12 interviews and not right now into the second effort, which has a working title. It's going to be slightly different since I covered most of the history and development of shows. This one is going to be more story-oriented as well as having interviews uh, with people, but it's the working title right now is The Rennie Experience. When you were doing your interviews, even in the beginning and now again, are you finding it easy as far as people cooperating with you and giving the history of their particular career and their operation? Or do oh, you find some resistance? Wants to talk to me now. Oh, yeah, now they do. Well, when you, how about the initial part? Were you, were you able initially, to get hold of people? There was, there was mixed reaction. People who go to festivals might be familiar with the Underhill Pavilion. Those are the uh, the tents that you see at these festivals, that the swooping tents with the, the little uh, flower at the top. There are literally hundreds of them all over the country. Jeff Underhill, sad to say, passed away this year, but he was one of the first people that I interviewed for the book. And when the book was published, I got a call from him and he said, where did you get all that information on me? <laughs> he didn't remember. <laughs> he didn't remember. <laughs> I'm sure that happens more often than not. Did you find it slow going at first when you were putting the materials together and getting the interviews done? Or did was a certain momentum you established and it was consistent all the way through? It was over. No, it was overwhelming. And life gets in the way at times. And, and you have other things to do. And you just have to drop it for a while. But actually, uh, thanks to COVID, that's what uh, gave me the time to both reach everyone and uh, get the project finished. When you were finished with it, and I'm sure you showed it to some people before you published it just to get some feedback, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would think that you would, you would send it to somebody and they would say, hey, you forgot to mention this person, or this fact is not quite right, or did you go through that process as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been uh, contacting people uh, left and right. There are a few stories from the early days that are a little bit hazy, and I actually uh, attribute 
this person explains this, this person explains that, that sort of thing, because you get differing uh, memories and it's hard to find out what's exactly right. Before I let you go, you have to tell me about the singing executioners. All right. Well, we do all the usual uh, singing executioner songs. Uh, <laughs> let's go like to what? The block, oh, baby, let's go to the block. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it's a dumb song after all. Uh, did you uh, hear the one about the cook who was convicted of trying to poison his master? No. He was given his choice between a steak or a chop. <laughs> How long, have, how long have the singing executioners been around? Uh, since 77. So, amazing. Uh, amazing. 45 years. Quite the record. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Al Olson, author of A History of the American Renaissance Festival. Oh, we didn't ask, where have all the hippies gone before I let you go? I didn't hear that. I said, where have all the hippies gone? I forgot to ask you that. Oh, uh, well, as a matter of fact, uh, there are an off, again, reading the story, you will find a number of people who were in that movement who gravitated to the festivals. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that then. That's great. Again, Al Olson, author of A History of the American Renaissance Festival, Where Have All the Hippies Gone? Available on Amazon, all the usual places. For everything about Al, go to Singing Executioners. Dot com. Al, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.